But before we begin, let's pause again for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for this morning. Thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love to us. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Your compassions, they fail not. And we thank you that you don't give up on us. We thank you, Father, that you are continuously redeeming and rescuing us. And may we continue, Father, to, to draw near to you, to grow to know more of you. And may you help us to continue to reach out to others, to give our time and our energy and effort to those around us and get to know them in a deeper way as well. Help us to be a blessing and a vessel that you can use for building your kingdom and your church here on this earth. May you just be here, Father. May your Holy Spirit fill our hearts and this, this room, Lord. And may you each help us to see our own hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So compassion. Lamentations 3, verses uh, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So basically, this message today is, it's, it's a, I guess you could call it a Samuel message. I mean... I don't know. I just keep coming back to these things a lot because I think I, I just see a need in my own life, the way my attitude is a lot of times, uh, the way I, I treat people is because of a, a lack of, of compassion, a lack of Christ's life. And it's to remind us that compassion plays a vital role in our Christian walk. Because if you think about it, if it had not been for Christ's mercy and compassion to us, a lot of us might not even be in this room today. And that's something to think about. I, I, I've said it before, I think about that a lot. I, I discussed it with Brother Alvin when he was here recently. Just when you start thinking of where you could be, in this world. It's sometimes scary. If this had not happened in your life, if these people had not prayed for you, if the, this person had not spoken to you, and that is all because of the Lord's compassion of where we could be. It's, it's if, you, if you start thinking about that and meditating on it, it's incredible. And it's all because of the Lord's compassion and mercy on us to save us from ourselves. Compassion in its deepest form means to suffer with another person. The word has a strong personal element. To have compassion means more than just feeling sorry for somebody. It means to get down where they are in the midst of their need and to suffer with them in the midst of their pain. When Noah Webster published the American Dictionary of English Language in 1828, he began his definition of compassion this way, a suffering 
with another, painful sympathy. As an illustration of this painful sympathy, Noah Webster quotes Luke 15, 20 of the prodigal son. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. That verse is very significant because it shows us that compassion is more than just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's more than feeling sorry for people in trouble. Biblical compassion means that you see the problem and that you are, mo you are moved by the need and you go to where the problem is and you get your hands dirty trying to, trying to help the person get their problem solved and raise them up to a higher level of life in Christ. And I think we all understand that. It is that the point here today with compassion is it's more than feeling sorry for somebody. It has to be more than that. It has to be more than just an emotion where we look at a situation and we feel sorry for that person. <clears throat> and that's about the extent of it. Mark 1 verses 40 to 41 offers a telling example of what compassion meant to Jesus. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity or compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. So, as you look at these two, as, at these two verses, what do you see? It says, moved, this leper came. We all know, I, I don't know if any one of us has ever seen a picture of what a leper looks like. It's, it's not a pretty sight. But this leper came and knelt before him and said, if you will, you can make me clean. And then the compassion does what? Is it more, was it more than just a feeling for Christ? Yes, it was. He actually reached out and he physically touched that leper. And in doing that, Christ broke all the customs and rules of that day. According to the Old Testament, if you have had leprosy, you were unclean. You were not supposed to touch that person. Period. People were so scared of lepers that they made them live in a colony away from the rest of society so that they would not contaminate anyone else. Because leprosy is a very contagious disease. But when Jesus saw the man with leprosy, he was so moved that he reached out and touched him. And that's what we have to understand. For our Lord Jesus Christ's compassion was not just a feeling. It was a commitment to get involved with hurting people. Real compassion is more than a feeling. Real compassion moves from feeling to action. And uh, the Apostle Peter says this in Acts 10:38. It's kind of a one-sentence summary of Jesus' ministry. It says, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He went about doing good. It's short, concise, and right to the point. 
it's not just sitting at home scrolling through the news and just uh, feeling sorry for people it's moved with compassion it moves you to action I have a story I'd like to share we're all familiar with this with this person but um, there is a there's a lesson in it because I felt that I don't know a lot of times when we just handle these things and these people in a way that's I don't know I don't know if I we can call it compassion it's a, it's the story of uh, Nikki Cruz it's just a short story of uh, of Nikki Cruz you're all familiar with uh, it's it's from the book um the cross and the switchblade I actually listened to it recently David Wilkerson and Nikki Cruz and this is kind of his testimony it's this is what he said he said Nikki Cruz says you can get high on alcohol you can get high on all kinds of drugs you can get high on immoral relationships I was high on hate and violent violence when Nikki Cruz showed up on the scene people had every reason to run and hide he wasn't just the leader of the renowned Mau Mau's, the toughest gang in New York City. Nicky was an animal. New York was a jungle. The law of the jungle, you behave like an animal, Nicky Cruz recalls. Animals don't know the difference between right and wrong. An animal has to kill another animal for survival. Pain and violence weren't anything new to Nicky. He grew up in Puerto Rico where his parents brutally abused him. Nicky's father used to throw him in a room with pigeons. He put me there, in there naked, and I used to scream, Nicky says. The pigeons used to get scared, and they'd scratch me all over. And Nicky's mother, she hit me so much and knocked me unconscious so many times over and over that honestly, if I grabbed a knife and stuck myself with it, I didn't feel the pain anymore. It wasn't just because they were cruel, they were possessed. Seances, satanic worship, animal sacrifices, they were all a normal part of his parents' lives. I saw my mother possessed by the devil many times, Nicky recalls. So when he hit the streets of New York, Nicky was a hardened man, void of love and full of hate. I wanted to do to others what my parents did to me, Nicky says. I used to feel good when I hurt some people. But alone in his tiny apartment in the projects, he didn't feel good. Privately, when I was alone, loneliness became like a snake that crawled inside my chest to eat me. It was there twisting and fighting. I felt so lost. The most you can live the way I lived is 20 years, and I was already 19. One year, in one year, I'd be dead. Only two people that saw the desperate condition of Nikki's heart uh, did try to do something. One was a psychologist. He told me about five times, there's a dark side in your life that nobody can penetrate. Nikki, you're walking straight to jail, the electric chair, and hell. There's no hope. The other was a pastor named David Wilkerson. He risked his life to tell Nikki that there was hope. I heard his voice. He said, God has the power to change your life. 
I started cursing him loudly, says Nicky. I spit in his face, I hit him, I told him, I don't believe in what you say, and you get out of here. Nicky never expected what he heard Wilkerson say next. Wilkerson said, you could cut me up into a thousand pieces and lay them in the street, and every piece will still love you. Nicky says, it did damage. Good damage in my brain and in my heart. I began to question it for two weeks. I could not sleep because I was thinking about what he said. Nicky and his gang showed up to one of David Wilkerson's rallies. One by one, they gave their lives to Christ. It was the crucifixion, Jesus' death on the cross, that grabbed Nicky. I was choked up with pain and my eyes were fighting and the tears began to come down and more tears and I was fighting and then I surrendered, says Nicky. I let Jesus hug me. I let my head rest on his chest. I said, I'm sorry, forgive me. And for the first time, I told somebody, I love you. The love Nicky got in return radically changed his life. When I had opened my eyes, I got a new heart. I'd been born again. I'm a child of the Lord. Nicky left the gang scene. He enrolled in Bible college and met Gloria. The two married and moved back to New York City where they ran Teen Challenge, a program to help troubled teens. Since then, Nicky has raised four girls and traveled all over the world as an evangelist and, uh, and a helper for the Teen Challenge program. Says the greatest success, I, he says, I shared with a lot of people about what Christ has done for me. But he says, one of the greatest successes of my life was when I brought my mother to Jesus and my father and my brother. Nicky chose to forgive his parents. When true forgiveness comes into you and then flows out, of, out from you, that dark cloud will disappear, says Nicky. You have access straight to the heart of Christ. Once an animal filled with hate, today a lover of souls. Now if you meet Nicky Cruz on the streets, you probably wouldn't run from him. You'd probably run to him. And here's what he might say. You can turn all that deep pain, hurt, and rejection and do what I did. Give it to Christ. You're going to be more happy with your life. And the book details his life a lot more of what actually went on. But... As, as I thought about what he said here, the two people that um, were, were in his life that actually wanted to help him. One was a psychologist. He says here, he told me about five times, there's a dark side in your life that nobody can penetrate, Nikki. You're walking straight to jail, the electric chair, and hell. There's no hope. You know what? What he said, not the truth, was actually true. I mean, you can't deny that what he did, what he said was, was, was not the truth, because it was. But he kind of reminds me, and he reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan where you see this person, you don't really want to know about his life, you just want to say the facts and move on on the outside and just go on with your life. And uh, the other one was David Wilkerson. What he did, decided to do, I mean, what, what David Wilkerson was all about, he left his wife, his family at home, 
and he went and he, he lived with these teenagers. He also spoke the truth. But for some reason, the, spook, the, the truth that David Wilkerson spoke, spoke a lot louder in Nikki's life than the psychologist did. Because it meant more. He actually wanted to help this person, to get to know him, to sacrifice his time and his effort to actually help these people. And what strikes me about this story and, uh, is, is a lot of times we see these people and we think that this is just, a, it's a terrible life. He, you know what he needs? He needs a prison cell. He needs to be put away. And we don't understand that this person had a terrible home life where his, his parents were actually satanic worshippers. And, and deep down when he shared in that book of the times in his room where he just cried and cried because his father and mother had actually left him and gone back home. And he was alone on those streets and that's all he knew was how to protect himself and to find food and to live every day. It just strikes me that we can be either one of the two here, the psychologist or David Wilkerson. And a lot of times that's who we are. Where we pick either one or the other. And one is a lot easier than the other one, believe me. It's a lot easier. I've learned that a lot of times the, the, the path the psychologist took is the easy path. It may not seem so to us because a lot of times it's hard to go to somebody and point out something in their life and to speak the truth. And it is necessary. But if that's all we're doing, it's just going to these people and saying what we think we should say and then leaving. That's the easy way out. And just going on with life. The harder and more difficult thing to do is to take a long-term approach of discipleship and teaching. That's what I think is actually the true compassion. And I remember listening to a message I'm not sure I tried to find it, but I'll try to tell it as best as I could about this pastor in a church that was really busy, especially this particular day. It was He said it was Easter Sunday. He had preached two services, morning and in the afternoon, on the crucifixion and the redeeming power of the cleansing blood of Christ. And that Christ died so that we may be forgiven our sins and made new creatures. And he says, after the service, everyone had gone home. He was sitting there just tired, alone in the sanctuary. And his door opens and, and this, this street bum comes in 
unshaven and ragged and smelly, came in through the doors and walked up to him. And this wasn't something new for him. They came to his church all the time, he said. So he didn't want to deal with this purse, so he reached into his pocket, pulled out some cash, says, how much do you want? And he says, the man just stood there. And he said, I don't want your money. I don't want your money. I've been listening to what you've been saying today. He says, I want the Jesus that you spoke about today, that you said can forgive my sins and give me a new heart and life. And he said that hit him like a ton of bricks. Here he was spending the day teaching and preaching. And when it actually came down to, to boots on the ground, he missed the whole point. He missed it. He was ready to just hand out this money and allow this person to, to just go because he felt he's just here for some money. And it's very challenging because I feel we can do the same thing. And I know every situation is different. There are people that take advantage of you. There's no, there's no doubt. They will take advantage of your kindness and of your compassion. And uh, just to emphasize this point a little bit, uh, I have a, another story in the same book of uh, David Wilkerson, where when he started this ministry, he brought in these, these teenagers to help out and uh, he says, he says this, when we got back to the center, I took our workers into the chapel again and told them the story of Martin Helensky. Uh, Martin was a high school senior who worked part-time to help support his invalid mother. One day when he was not working, he went to a, a party at a horror house of another high school boy. Teenagers were there, six boys and four girls. After an hour of drinking vodka and dancing, to music, the vodka ran out. The boys took a collection for beer, but Martin refused. A fight followed. A 12-inch sword appeared from one of the boys' waistbands. There was a swift jab, and Martin Nielensky lay dead on the kitchen floor. Now then, I knew the words I was about to say would bother some of our workers, fresh from the seminary as they were. I leaned back with my hands locked behind my head. Suppose you could have talked to Martin Ilensky on some street corner for a few minutes. Remember, it is his fate to die if he goes to that party. What would your first words be to him? I tell him that Jesus saves, piped up one boy. That's what I was afraid of, said David Wilkerson. Young eyes looked up puzzled. He says, we've got to be very careful that we don't become parrots. I try to keep my ear tuned for phrases, religious terms that I've heard before. Then when I'm on the street, I never use such a phrase without first saying a prayer that I can give it all the power it had when it was spoken for the very first time. What, I said, do you really mean when you say Jesus saves? Of course, these boys and girls knew the answer to that. They weren't just mouthing oft-heard answers now. They were talking about something that happened to them. Well, it means, said one girl, that you're born again. 
Still the words had a pat sound to them. They didn't have the ring of freshness we, we had to capture if we were going to touch Martin Ilensky before he was stabbed with the sword. What happened to you when you were born again, I asked this girl. And as soon as I did, the young lady grew quiet. She hesitated a moment before she answered. In a voice that caught the attention of the entire room, she told me about a change that had come into her life one day. She talked of how she had been lonesome and afraid and how her life didn't seem to be going anywhere. I'd heard about Christ, she said, but the name was just a word. Then one day a friend told me that Christ could take away my loneliness and my fear. We went to church together. The preacher invited me to come forward, and I did. I knelt down in front of everybody and asked this Christ, who had just been a name, to work a change in my life. And nothing has been the same since then, she said. I'm really, I really am a new person, which is why they say you're born again, I suppose. You lost your lonesomeness? Yes, replied the girl altogether. What about your fear? That too. And Christ is more to you now than just an empty word. Of course, a word can't change things. The room was silent. Nor could empty words have changed things for Martin, I said. Keep this boy in mind when you go out into the street tomorrow. A lot of times we know what we should say. We have the same words. Jesus saves. And Jesus can help you. And it's all true. But it's a lot better received if it actually comes from a true heart. If it's an experience that you yourself experienced. If you're making yourself vulnerable to others. If you're showing them that you also are a person that still has needs, that still needs Christ every day. And you're not just running past them, just speaking the words and going on with your life. I've had this story before, this next one. I feel it's, it's a very important story. It's very, it's short. But it has an amazing, it's very sad, but it, but it has a very good moral or a, a lesson. It says, touch is, the mo is a most humanizing quality. René Arpad Spitz was an Austrian-American psychoanalyst who compiled some amazing evidence pertaining to the absence of touch and sensory deprivation. His studies remind us of the many instances of sensory deprivation used on purpose to break prisoners and make them lose their identity and human pride. He says, in a South American orphanage, Spitz observed and recorded what happened to 97 children who were deprived of emotional and physical contact with others. Because of a lack of funds, there was not enough staff to adequately care for these children ages three months to three years old. Nurses changed diapers and fed and bathed the children. But there was little time to hold, touch, and talk to them as a parent would. 
After three months, many of them showed signs of abnormality. Besides the loss of appetite and being unable to sleep well, many of the children lay with a vacant expression in their eyes. After five months, serious deterioration set in. They lay whimpering with troubled and twisted faces. Often when a doctor or nurse would pick up an infant, it would scream in terror. 27, almost one third of all of the children died in the first year, but not from a lack of food or health care. They died of a lack of touch and emotional nurture. Because of this, seven more died in the second year. Only 21 of the 97 survived, most suffering from serious psychological damage later in life. It's a very sad story, but it has a, it has a deep message. It can, it can happen here. It can happen in our own homes. I, I know I've seen it in my life. <laughs> you can live in the same community. You can live in the same house with people that you say you love. You can be there. You can be a, a, a dad. You can be a father. You can be doing your duties. Can be feeding and putting food on the table and teaching and whatever else you want to do. But in reality, if the heart connection and the feeling of the, the tenderness and the reaching out and touching your children and their heart and your, your, your wife and your brothers and sisters, you can be in the same predicament as these babies were. Outwardly, all the physical needs are met. There's no lack. But inside, there's a different story. There's loneliness, depression, and pain. And I have to tell you that our time in uh, our time in Phoenix, we just had to sit down with some people and just dig through our lives because there were things happening in our lives where we were desperately failing those connections but just talking simply talking about the day we were doing the cleaning we were taking care of the children we were doing our duties but if you do not take time to connect, there's some major stuff going to be going on in the heart. And from what I've uh, come to understand, that if you do those things, there's a deeper trust and compassion that's being built and a lot of times if you do that with a person you say wow I did not know the extent of your situation I didn't understand your side of the story and his brother shared with us that you need to take time to do these things he said he and his wife put two chairs in their in their bedroom and they sit down and they make sure they talk 
They make sure they talk and not just about whatever, the birds and the bees. That when you bring out these things, like it says, James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availed much. It doesn't say for, I mean, it, for a reason it says that you may be healed. There's a purpose there. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's healing. It's, it's healing. If you've ever experienced that, just getting into a room. I've, we've experienced that multiple times and sharing your heart and having people pray for you. It's like a burden is lifted. You feel, it feels your heart has been healed. And I just want to thank you again for your prayers. But, but I have to tell you that some of the most precious times is when people come home and they pray for you. They pray for you one-on-one. -on -one. They're there, they put their hands on you and they pray for you. It's... You just, you feel loved, you feel that, you feel the compassion there. You feel that these people want to be part of your life. And it's not that I'm ungrateful for those that don't come home and don't pray like this. I'm very, very thankful for that. I know we, we all can't do that and we feel that we'd be invading whatever. But just being there and crying out to the Lord and praying together it's wonderful and we shouldn't just do that for people that have a, a physical sickness we should do that with spiritual we should do that with people that are going through through difficulties um, in life here in Altona um, different things we should, should just make it up or available so I just wanted to share that with you, that how that is, how important it is, how encouraging it is. Then going on with compassion, compassion even through times where people make continual bad choices. I see this also in my life. How do we deal with those people? What my point is with that we tend to give up on people who make continual bad choices and life decisions. Sometimes those choices end in difficult situations. We have a tendency to lose compassion for people like these. We feel that their bad choices time and again have brought them to where they are now and that they should straighten it out on their own. I'm not saying that the school of hard knocks can't teach a person valuable lessons. What I'm trying to say is what Brother Richard continuously reminds us, that we are dealing with human beings that have a soul and that are precious in the sight of God. It's something that's, that is worth well remembering, well worth remembering. We are dealing with human beings that have a soul and that are precious in the sight of God. Essentially, they're worth another chance. Manasseh, the king of Judah, was certainly a cruel tyrant. 
His story is told in Second Chronicles 33. He was an idolater who turned against God and worshipped every kind of pagan deity. Manasseh was guilty of immorality. He practiced every conceivable evil and perversion. He devoted himself to witchcraft and was a murderer, even sacrificing his son to a pagan god. God's judgment fell on Manasseh. He was bound in chains and taken away to Babylon. But that is not the end of the story. While the wicked king was confined in the dungeon, he had time to think, and Manasseh began to pray. This man who deserved hell cried out to God for forgiveness, and God answered. God's mercy and compassion to us is so vast and beyond our comprehension because he responds to repentant hearts. He who has often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. That's also true. But in the end, if, if, the, if the repentance is there, what did God do with Manasseh? Did he forgive him? He did. The consequences were still there. Israel suffered a lot for what Manasseh did. But in his personal case, God forgave him. Imagine that. It seems like to us, I, I don't, I mean, it's just... For me, true compassion does not give up on people. It's, I won't read the parable of the prodigal son. I just uh, have this, a short summary, kind of, the parable of the prodigal son. It says, compassion never gives up on people. In a world of so many disposables, compassion insists we stop throwing them away, even if it seems they've blown their best chances. This son, had said to his father, give me my inheritance, which was very disrespectful while the head of a household was still living. The younger son is essentially saying to his father, dad, you are better off to me dead than alive. And the father responds in turn, dividing among his sons his livelihood. The father divides his livelihood, his very life. The son had cast off his father, but as the lost son makes his way home after Spending all of that in riotous living, the story is so utterly clear. His father sees him while he is still way far off, far way off. Bookkeeping, farming, building, he hasn't been doing any of these tasks essential to the household. He's been doing something that takes precedence over them all. He's been watching for his son. He sees his son. He recognize what, recognizes what others might not. When the boy is still but a silhouette against the sky, the father sees him. He sees his slowed but familiar gait before he comes into full clarity of view. While he is still far off, his father sees because compassion never gives up on people. In the same way compassion pursues, the father takes off, hiking up his robe to run down the path to meet his returning son. Then a rapid staccato of action, moved with compassion, he falls on his neck, son's neck, and kisses him again and again. No testing of the son, no questions asked. The father cuts him off mid-apology speech with an extravagant welcome and celebration. And as the story continues, he acts similarly toward his elder son. Filled with his understandable anger out in the field, the elder son, but the father again pursues one of his sons. This is a father that goes out to both of his children. The parable tells us he pleads with the elder. He even entreats him with a term of such endearment, my dear child, 
because compassion always goes out to people. A compassion defies, and compassion defies expectation. Understand that in the ancient world of this parable, by most accounts, fathers were detached, authoritative, conscious of hierarchy, and defensive of their honor. Children came to them, not the other way around. This father, this father so defies convention that the parable scholar Bernard Scott has said by first century standards he was more like a mother than a father. Fathers don't give away their inheritance as though they are dead. Fathers don't wait at the front gate for days at a time. Fathers don't hike up their robe. Fathers don't pursue. Fathers don't fall down in a mess of emotion. But this father does. This is a picture of how our Heavenly Father acts towards us. And yet, when I look at my life, I see a lot of times the opposite of that. I see myself a lot of times as the one that has been forgiven the unrepayable amount of talents and then goes out and grabs the one that owes me one talent by the neck and demands it back. This parable is a very, it's very deep. It, it's actually pretty amazing what he says here. His father, or this, this, this man acted more like a mother than a father. And what he said, he didn't even let him speak his mind. He didn't let his son speak. That's, that's pretty amazing to me. He put, he put a robe on, he washed him, put a robe on, his, on him, a ring on his finger, and built, made a feast for him. After everything he had done to his father. The reputation, the ruined reputation of the father, the uh, whatever you want to call it, the money's gone. He, he's coming home to be a servant, and his father does this. There was no strophe there. Um, I have the, the story, another story of compassion that I see myself as the story of Joan. I won't go through it. It's just this. It's, it's an amazing story of how patient God is, first of all, with the prophet Jonah. <laughs> you just think, okay, God, find someone else to do this. I mean, this man clearly does not want to go to Nineveh to preach to these people. He doesn't. He has seen these people. He knows about them. He knows who they are. And he, he wants to watch them. He wants to watch them die. So find someone else. But I think God had something else in mind for Jonah. He, through a series of events, he, uh, he brought him to actually think about what he is thinking. Basically, his heart. What his true heart is there under that, under that, uh, that plant. He finally told him, he finally told him, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, 
the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their left and their right hand, as well as many animals. And a lot of times, as we look at the world around us, and we see what's going on, as we see the wickedness, as we scroll through the news, the Jonah in all of us wants to sit outside the city and wait for the wrath of God to fall on the wicked, that they will receive their just dues. I have to admit I sometimes think like that. That you, you, you just think, thank you, Lord, that there is a, a God who will, who will take care of this and they'll get what they deserve. I don't know. It, it sometimes it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't ring true. Yes, there is a God that will, that will judge, but what should our hearts be? It, it just seems to me we should have more of a heart as Stephen did when he was being stoned to death by his accusers where he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin to their charge. Imagine. Lord, don't hold this sin to their charge. It just seems to me that as we look at these things that are happening in the world, it should, there should be a compassion in us that comes out that wants to save rather than destroy, that wants to lead and bring them to Christ. And not saying things like, well, yeah, it's a good thing that we're taking care of these, that, that the president is, is, uh, is bombing them and that whatever. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. We all know very well, I, I speak of this more times than I probably should, of Corinne Betsy Ten Boom. It's just... I'm, I'm just amazed at, at how they handle these things. She, uh, Betsy at one time told her, and she said, don't hate Corey. Just after she had been beaten by a prison guard, Corey was actually, she wanted to go over and pick up a, a stick and start beating that prison guard. And she told her, Corey, don't hate. Look at these people. They've been trained in hatred. You have to show them something else. They've been trained in hatred. He said, she said, pray for that woman. They know how to hate and look what it's done to them. And that's, I kind of want to bring that out. That a lot of times the world is producing these people, these mobs, these whatever you want to call them. They are trained in hatred. And it seems like they don't know what they're doing. They don't know anything else. I won't say they don't know what they're doing. It's not true. They make their choices. They choose to, to, to do whatever they do, just like everybody else. But it seems like they do not know a better way. They need people that can show them what the love of Christ looks like. And... 
Betsy didn't make it out of the prison camp. It eventually took her life, but uh, Cory made it out and she eventually, she thought she would never go back to Germany, would never meet any of these prison guards, but she did and she had to forgive. She had to forgive, just like we have to forgive. So, in closing, there's this one verse, or there's these verses in Matthew 9, 9 to 13 that say, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This, this, uh, this short line here, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus declared that he came to call the sinners, not the righteous. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The irony of these statements is simply that none is righteous. No, not one. We are all sinners and sick, and like Jesus came for Matthew, he comes for us. Both tax collector and Pharisee alike, they all landed in the same category. None are worse off or better off. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins, needed, needing saving and divine intervention. We were all born sick and live out of our sickness. Humanity doesn't need a longer rule book. It needs a merciful physician, a righteous savior. Jesus quoted Hosea 6, chapter 6, verse 6, which says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The main point made in Hosea and by Jesus was a simple one. You can conduct all the sacrifices and religious exercises and rituals you want, but if, apart from a covenantal relationship with the God of steadfast love and mercy, you have missed the point entirely. Knowledge of and fellowship with God matters. Once we taste the steadfast love and mercy in God, we can't help but be transformed become faithful, loving, and merciful ourselves. May we see in Jesus a beautiful cohesion, one who mercifully spent time with sinners and the unrighteous, but loved them enough to call them out of their sin and spiritual sickness to trust in him. And it seems like rarely do we see this cohesion embodied in our culture. We find people who feel comfortable on one side, but not the other. Some claim to be friend of sinners sitting at their table like Jesus did, but never point to the terrible trajectory of sin in their lives apart from Jesus. They never invite these friends into a better way of life in the kingdom of God. Others, similar to the Pharisees, critique from the outside, but never enter into a relationship with those they are judging. It's easier and makes us feel self-righteous and approved. 
This was never the way of Jesus. He spoke to both tax collector and Pharisee, warning both alike. May we be challenged by his example and turn his model and, and turn to model his sort of holy love for others in our own lives. He was both loving and holy, never pitting these two ideas against each other. His love was completely holy and his holiness was entirely loving. So compassion is also having a brother that cares for me enough to come and point things out in my life and people have done that I'm very thankful for that it is not just a, a one-size-fits-all thing or a, just smearing everything over but if you think about compassion you think about your life he says here in Colossians 3, 13, or 3, 12, 13, and 14, he says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Which is the bond of perfectness. If you remember Matthew 25, the last uh, day of or the judgment day when we stand before God and he says, he says those things to his children. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me when I was in prison, you came unto me. Or when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. What is that? What is that? There's only one word for it. It's compassion. It was a life of compassion for others. That's what it boils down to. Compassion enough to, to call people out of a life of sin and into a life of Christ to meet their spiritual and physical needs. So it's challenging. It's hard work. And it'll take sacrifice. It takes sacrifice either way you look at it. To have a real relationship with a person to, to invest in their life, take sacrifice. It'll take sacrifice from our own lives if we want to do that. So it's good to, in, in, in different situations, to put ourselves also in the shoes of others, to listen to their stories, to listen to their side of the story, to pray with them. I think we fail a lot in that, in simply praying with people together. Just take time to pray with them. It does so much. It doesn't have to be long prayers either. So, thank you, and may God bless us.